Hello listeners, my name is Tashara and welcome to another episode of the LSE Focal Point podcast. Today I am very excited to be joined by Jonathan Turner. Jonathan is a partner at Excel focusing on later stage consumer and enterprise companies. Jonathan studied PPE at Oxford University and prior to joining Excel, Jonathan was a managing partner at Headline VC and is also one of the co-founders of Catalyst Partners. Jonathan, how are you doing today? I'm great, Dushar. Thank you very much for having me join and very much appreciate the, uh, the chance to talk with you. Hey, thanks for being here and looking forward to our discussion. So Jonathan, you have spent quite a bit of time in investment banking, having founded your own tech boutique. Could you tell us more about your career journey and what it was that really motivated you to make that move from investment banking to venture capital? Sure. So I think first, just to backtrack how I got into investment banking in the first place, and it was really because I didn't know what I wanted to do when I left college. And when I, the first thing I thought I was going to do is I thought I was going to stay at Oxford and be an academic and just study in an ivory tower for the rest of my life. And a very good friend of mine persuaded me that eventually that were, yeah, that wouldn't be the right fit for me. And I really didn't know what to do. And so I did an, end up doing an internship in investment banking and fell in love with just the pace of the activity and the, 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 the caliber of people that got to interact with. And I'm a person who likes to have lots of things going on. And investment banking is, is perfect for that because you're always running around you know, working on multiple projects. And in 2008, my partner, my partners, Frank Quattrone and Adrian Dollard, and I decided to, to start Catalyst. And, you know, that was because we thought that the investment banking industry was doing a terrible job serving the technology industry. That's what our venture capital friends were telling us. That's what our CEO friends were telling us. And that was our own experience. So we decided to just focus on something that would just deliver great service to, you know, the up and coming great companies and existing great companies around the world. That was the plan. We did it at the start of the financial crisis where there was both terrible timing and good timing depending on how you look at it a lot of people wrote us off but up to a lot of hard work and the brilliance of a lot of our team yeah i think we we managed to pull it off but when we started catalyst frank and i and adrian and i we thought that we were going to invest as well as advise that was the original plan in fact not that you should but if you went back and you looked at the original press release we launched two businesses an advisory business and an investing business so we always had an interest in in investing and in many ways i've always believed that it's if it's if done right it's a very similar skill set in terms of really understanding the biggest themes and trends that are going on in the industry where do you see value being created who's going to do that where is there where are there opportunities for value creation through strategic activity or financing activity and, and what do you think is going to change the world, basically? As simple as that. And who do you want to do that with? Build relationships with those people. And so while the product is different, one is delivery of advice around strategic matters. One is investing capital. So you're a principal along the ride. I've always believed that the skill set is very similar and overlapping. Not 100%, but similar. So when I, when I decided to step down from Catalyst, I didn't know what I was going to do. I had a blank sheet of paper. I'd advise everybody at some point in their career to have a blank sheet of paper and not just go from thing to thing. But I got sucked back into technology and because I, I loved it and realized that you know, that's where I should spend my time. And rather than go back to you know, the advisory side of the business, I wanted to focus on, on investing and, and that complementary skill set I was just describing. So a much longer answer to your very short question, Sharif, but that, that's, really the, that's really the background. 
No, very interesting journey indeed, and definitely very interesting to hear about sort of the background of, of Catalyst as well. So I'm, I'm sure throughout your career, you've worked on so many different deals and so many different investments as well. But would you say that one has particularly stuck out to you? One particular deal or investment? That's an excellent question. I have worked on quite a few, and so it's very hard to sort of pick on one. I would say the, the one that really sticks in my mind, though, is really the deal that probably created and catapulted Catalyst from being a, you know, hope and a dream of, you know, three three men and a dog, which literally was how it started, literally how it started. May honey rest in peace. And really put us, you know, into the big time. And we had done a project for Google. Frank had always had a, a dream that Google would be our first client. And, and it was a fun project, but it wasn't really a properly sort of fulfilled client. And then we were very lucky to be appointed by a storage business called Data Domain. And there were a couple of individuals around Data Domain that have gone on and had fantastic careers. One is Frank Slootman, who was the CEO, who is now the CEO of Snowflake, having been having had a fantastic career. The chairman of the board was Anil Bushri, who was the founder of Workday, and was a partner at Greylock at the time. And not quite sure how we pulled it off, but Anil bet on us to do a great job when they got approached for a sale. And it sort of shocked the world in some ways because, you know, Morgan Stanley or Goldman Sachs probably should have got the mandate, but they gave the mandate for this very sizable, very interesting company to, to the three men and, and a doc and a few, and a few very hardworking team members. And it ended up becoming a public bidding war and being one of the greatest M&A outcomes in Silicon Valley history at the time. But it was largely driven by Anil's amazing support at backing a young startup that to deliver a great service. And that's sort of, he knew Frank from before and I got to know him a little, you know, a little bit, but that sort of belief in us, as opposed to just going with the establishment was both transformative from a self-confidence point of view and the confidence of the firm that we could really get the big time. But it was also an enormously fun deal because we knew everybody was, everybody was talking about it. And you're far too young to, to remember it. This was, in, this was in 2009, I believe. But it really put us on the map. And because it was, I think it was a 221% premium that we ended up sort of getting for the client, which is sort of a little bit unheard of and uh, good success all around. So that one, that one, we, uh, that one I'll remember for a long time. No, definitely sounds like a memorable deal. And Jonathan, if I could just go off track a little bit. So, you know, you mentioned how it was Frank's dream to have like Google as your first client and you actually managed to do that. Could I just ask like how you sort of went about getting such a huge client as your first client when you just started a boutique? That, so Eric, in our very first press release, Eric Schmidt gave us a quote and, you know, because of course when you, when you launch a business, you want to launch it with a splash. So at the time, Eric gave us a sort of vote of endorsement. Gideon Yu of Facebook gave us a vote of endorsement. And Frank will kill me for not remembering who else was on the press release, because I know he I know he remember. But we had we'd sort of put that together. And at the time, Frank had asked Eric, and he'd known him for a long time, you know, if he would endorse us. And he did, which was quite a brave thing to do. Well, he, he's CEO of Google, he can do whatever he wants. Um, but it was a very, very kind thing for him to do. Frank said, look, well, one day, you know, there's something for us to work on. And and it's my dream that you're the first first client. Frank had always been our 
big supporter of Google over the years and and, and I, I thought amazingly highly of the business. And then we got a phone call out of the blue, literally out of the blue. And it said, you know, Microsoft was trying to buy Yahoo at the time with a hostile takeover. And Google, of course, inevitably got sucked into, you know, sucked into it. And Google gave us a very clear mandate of what they wanted to be the outcome of this particular sort of Silicon, Silicon Valley slugfest. And so that's how, it, that's how it happened. But we didn't know it was coming. It was literally a phone call out of the blue. And, and, a, and a, crazy, a crazy story that will take longer than a 15-minute podcast to go through. No, great. Thank you for sharing that. So you mentioned earlier, one of the things that you really like about, you know, sort of throughout your career was that you got to wear so many different hats and there's always so many different things going on. What would you say is your favorite part of your job currently? I love meeting people who have a passion for what they're doing. And that's why, you know, I, I think it's really important that people have some area of expertise and focus and understand the themes and trends going on. But I've always quite liked sort of having exposure to, to lots of those different things and trends. But when you walk into a room and you meet a founder and founding team who is driven with a very clear idea of what they want to achieve and they're completely passionate about making what they're building something special, knowing that it involves incredible sacrifice. And, and particularly when you see people who want to surround themselves with people who can contribute to that project, whatever that is, whatever that vision is, it's incredibly uplifting. And my experience is that the very best founders want input from other people because nobody's nobody's the smartest person in every single subject area in every situation that is going to come across. And so when you find yourself in those situations and you can help companies grow, you know, consistent with their mission, that for me is incredibly invigorating you can't you can't you that's a that's a sort of a little you know work drug that I, I i'm never going to weed myself off no of course i'm sure that's so motivating as well so maybe just to talk a bit more about the industry in general with the current macroeconomic situation there have inevitably been some challenges both in the technology industry and in venture capital in general especially in terms of funding what sort of challenges do you foresee continuing in the next year? And do you think there's anything that can be done to sort of alleviate these challenges? Yeah, I mean, the first thing to alleviate the challenges is to uh, somebody, somebody who I learned a lot from in my early stage of my career said, uh, said, said this to me, said, you know, business is, you know, like being in a movie. But the trick is knowing which scene you're in. It's not. And, and I think, and I mentioned that because I think that, we have to recognize the scene that we're in right now, which is the, in the reality of, of, what it, of, of where we are. And I'm not a sort of doom and gloom, it's all gonna to come to an end. And so we've got a cuss cut to profitability tomorrow for every single business. You know, I'm not in that camp, but I'm also very much not in the camp of, well, it'll all, figure, you know, it'll all, be, it'll all be fine. I think recognize that between Europe and the United States, we printed $9 trillion worth of, you know, of, of paper during the pandemic and it all had to go somewhere those days aren't going to come back. And so recognizing basically what we need to do is as an industry is go back to basics, which is, you know, all of the, all of the boring stuff of good unit economics in businesses, good capital efficiency, raising money at the right time from the right partners who can add value, having positive momentum in your, your, your culture and, and the culture of, 
the economic culture of companies so that there's always, you know, things think that things have got a, a positive upward upward slope. Investing investing aggressively but with with but with care, with real thorough thoroughness behind whatever it whatever it might be, whether it's a, a new product or a new geography. Those are sort of business fundamentals that have been true since the beginning of time. And we got away from it. And we were all had our we were all complicit in it in some degree. And that's what we've got to do. We've just got to go back to to doing that. And that's doing business with people that you trust, that you build relationships with, getting real alignment between everybody who's involved in your business from the person who's the most junior you know, you know, employee all the way through to the people on your board of directors and all of your investors along the way. Like that's It's basic, but those are the kind of things that we've got to do. And the quicker we do that, the better off we're all going to be, whether you're a small company that's you know that, that might struggle to raise its next round of capital or you're one of the biggest companies out there that will enable us to see it through but unfortunately there are going to be companies that don't make it and that's largely because many of them were funded at a time of almost uh, it's plentiful capital would be an understatement but uh, but maybe they haven't got product market fit or maybe the competition is too strong and you know they may not they may just not survive survive through it Great. And definitely an interesting take you have sort of on going back to basics, which we will discuss in a little bit, but just sort of going off something you've touched upon before, sort of the vast amount of capital that we had available during the pandemic, given the sort of, do you see this current funding correction that's going on right now as something that was inevitable, or do you think it could have been avoided? Most things can be avoided. I'm generally a a fan of the the, the screw-up theory of history rather than the conspiracy theory of history. But I think when so much money was printed, it's it's inevitable that it's going to find it's going to go somewhere. And so, you know, if you look at sort of the price of used watches or the price of used cars or sort of assets all across, you know, were were very, very heavily inflated over a period of time. Not just the tech-focused venture capital community, but because, you know, some of the greatest returns and greatest growth are happening in technology, that sector, you know, got the most, you know, got the most attention and probably the most egregious excess amounts of capital. Very hard for anybody around a company. Let's say you're the founder of a company and you did your last round at 200 million. And then six months later, somebody comes along and values you at a billion and, you know in your heart of hearts that you're not really worth a billion. But if you take the money that's being offered, you could expand your company, you could hire people you, you know, who much more easily. It's very hard to say, no, you know what, I'm actually not worth a billion. I mean, who's gonna so and particularly for those who thought that might be the last funding round they ever would need. So I think there's there's ways in which people could have stewarded the capital they took in better. They probably could have invested in companies that were more efficient. So some of this, some of what's coming in terms of you know, company failure would have been, you know, would have been minimized. But I don't think there's a way to just totally avoid it and you know shut ourselves off. It's too the world's too competitive and it's too global and capital moves freely and instantly pretty much anywhere in the world. No, I, I definitely agree with that. And Jonathan, so far we've we've had a great discussion about sort of your career journey. And then we also talked about venture capital. 
So kind of going back to about more about you earlier, I already made you pick one deal of the many that you've worked on. I think I'm now going to ask you to pick one book that has influenced you the most throughout your life and your career. Oh, that's a great one. Well, there's one I'm going to give you. I'm going to I'm going to be a bad, bad, bad partner here for you. Sorry, I, I'm going to pick two. And I think there's there's I normally am not a fan of business books. Mm. because often I think they basically have 200 words of wisdom, but they get spread out over 250 pages and by <laughs> it sort of repeats the same thing. But I, there is a business book that I thoroughly recommend everybody read. And it's called AI Superpowers, and it's written by Kai-Fu Lee, and he wrote it a long time ago before the, you know, the current AI trend. And he, he had formerly run Microsoft and then Google in China and has a very interesting... He has, he has a true view of, of China and the United States because he spent a lot of his career in the United States. And he's been pioneering AI since the 1980s when he first started working with Steve Jobs. So he, he's somebody who actually really knows what they're, <laughs> what they're talking about. And he just paints a very interesting picture and story about how the, the race for sort of AI dominance between the two countries and the competition between the two countries has played out to date and this book was written a few years ago and how it will play out in the future and it's not super technical so you don't need a you know phd from stanford to read it i managed to read it so anybody can and I, but i think it's sort of a topic a book for the topic of the day that's a really interesting one and then the book that i've always loved and have read many 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 times but just a, as a novel is 100 years of solitude by garcia marquez i think that's my absolute favorite book and if i was in the apocryphal stuck on a desert island, not with discs, but with a book, that would be top of my list. Oh, definitely some great books indeed. And I, I will check out that AI one. That sounds really interesting. So again, going back to sort of the early stages of your career, back when you know you yourself were a university student, what advice do you wish that someone would have given you back in the day? That's a great question. So the back in the day for me was pre-cell phones, pre certainly pre-smartphones and pre-social media. I think my general advice to people is just try stuff. You know, do, do with your career, especially at that age, you know, sort of when you're finishing university, don't get sort of locked into a shoot of, or a path, you know, too quickly. Obviously, if you absolutely know that what you want to do is, is X and it's always been your life team, go for it. But just try, try different, try different things. Keep populating your brain. And if you're really interested in, if you're really interested in science, and you know you're an engineer and you want to, you know that's going to be your thing. Go, read some history, right? Take a class in French. You know, travel. Like keep your mind kind of vibrant and expanded. And, and even if you've, even if you've started to, to specialize, and then just meet people, get to know people. The, you learn so much and achieve things through other people. And I've, I'm very candid and say I've never achieved anything really by myself. I've only ever achieved things through and with other people. And that gives you a huge amount of pleasure. And so start networking early, not in a sort of cheesy, here's my business card kind of way, but just really getting to know people and figuring out from all different, you know, from all different walks, not just people who share the same interests with you. That's time that will never be badly spent and it will, you'll, you'll be reaping the rewards for the rest of your rest of your career. Yeah, it's definitely some great advice uh, indeed. And I'm sure that's something we can all apply, especially at this time. 
So to sort of wrap things up, do you have any final thoughts that you would like to share with our listeners? Yes, I have a general thought and I, 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 I think there's, first thought is don't take career advice from Twitter, right? And there's, you go on Twitter and there's the, oh, here are the 10 things to make you successful in X or is the five things that are going to make you a brilliant venture capitalist, right? And I would just say the vast majority of people who write those things are incredibly well-meaning, but there is not one size fits all, you know, certainly don't follow, but I hear people saying, oh, I read this article on Twitter and I'm not saying you shouldn't read, but, you know, there is no formula. Find your own way, find your own personality through, you know, through what you do, the, 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 Golden cliche of do what you love is 100% true. And, uh, you know, try and experiment things with things. That's, that's all, I would, all I would leave you with. No, it's definitely a great note to end on. So, you know, thank you so much for being here today. And thank you for the engaging conversation. I'm sure that our listeners can take a lot away from this episode. And thank you to our audience for listening and stay tuned for more episodes to come. Thank you very much for having me.